Mm. Some people just move really far out. And there are some parts that are more or less affordable than others based on how far out you are and how inconvenient the train is. In this week's episode of The Mixtape, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Anna Stansbury, an assistant professor at MIT's Work and Organization Studies Department. Anna is a PhD economist working at the intersection of two fields, uh, macroeconomics and labor economics. And in our interview, we did basically two things. We learned, I learned more about her personal story, where she came from, how she got where she is. And I learned more about her thoughts and ideas about what's going on with workers in the United States today. <clears throat> Anna grew up in England. Uh, her parents were both lawyers who ended up leaving their professions to go work on problems with corruption in the construction industry. And I don't think I was reading too much into it to see this theme of interest in social justice in her parents, as well as how Anna has what appears to be sort of sorted into that herself. She came to the United States after graduating from Cambridge University with a degree in economics to study at Harvard Kennedy School's Masters of Public Policy program. Uh, rather than going into something directly related to public policy, though, she stayed at Harvard and got her PhD in economics because in her own words, she wanted to have impact and realized that she could do that best as an academic economist. This is not an unusual motivation at all within economics in my experience. If you go back and listen to my interview with Susan Athey from earlier this year, you will hear many types of similar things with what Susan said drew her to economics too. But Susan and, a Susan and Anna, while they specialize in different areas within economics, they're very similar uh, in that they think economics can help improve the world. And because they want to improve the world, they decided to become an economist. I know of Anna only from arm's length. We follow each other on Twitter and are part of a larger network dubbed hashtag econ Twitter. This is our first time to actually talk. And in preparing for the talk, I realized I read through a bunch of her papers <clears throat> kind of at a topical level. Uh, but the more I began to read them, the more intrigued I was by her research and decided to start an independent readings this semester with a PhD student to go through her labor papers, as well as a bunch of other papers that I've been meaning to read. She works in topics in labor that I think are really critically important that if you kind of want, if you're paying attention in labor, you're watching kind of this resurgence of interest in an area called monopsony, as well as just um, uh, issues regarding policies that can help workers. The overall well-being of workers is clearly something that Anna is very interested in. And the overall well-being of workers is not just simply about employment, but it's also about real income. And the reason why real income is really important, uh, wages in particular, is really important is because most Americans, most people in the world buy goods and services which go into their lives to make their lives better uh, using their wages. They don't use profits from a firm that they own and they don't use dividends from capital or stocks or savings or anything like that. They're workers. Many of them live paycheck to paycheck. 
very low savings, trying to make ends meet. She's a part of a large of a group of people active in labor economics that's kind of forced me to really go back and look more closely at my priors about the role that minimum wages may or may not be playing in helping workers, uh, the role that unions have traditionally played in helping workers, whether these things are effective policies or not. Uh, and um, also just making me realize again that uh, the gains from trade that happen between the worker and the employer are not always distributed the same over time. It's a bunch of puzzles that Anna kind of has pointed to that's made me really want to go back to the books and the drawing board and think more deeply about what exactly is going on with workers and the labor markets and the product markets over time to start thinking through what policies may be helpful. Talking with Anna was great. I'm gonna be spending the fall reading more of her papers. Highly encourage you to do too. Hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Thanks so much. My name is Scott Cunningham and this is Mixtape Podcast. Okay, it is my pleasure to have uh, Anna Stan Dr. Anna Stansbury uh, on the, the podcast this week. Anna, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, before we start, can you just tell me, uh, for the sake of the reader, your name, your title, and where you're employed? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Anna Stansbury. Um, I'm an assistant professor of work and organization studies at MIT Sloan School of Management. And I'm part of um, IWER at MIT, which is the Institute for Work and Employment Research. So it's a sort of interdisciplinary group of scholars studying issues to do with work and economic inequality as it relates to work, employment, employment relations. Oh, okay, cool. All right. Well, let's start with an icebreaker. All right. Great. So uh, uh, what was the first concert that you ever attended? How old were you? And uh, did you, who'd you go with when you went? So that's a that's a hard question. The first one ever, and I don't know if I remember the first one ever, which maybe says less about more about me. <laughs> but um, an early concert I went to, which I remember, was uh, Battle of the Bands at high school. So I was at school during the kind of indie emo era, oh, and yeah. so everyone who was anyone was in in some kind of an amateur indie rock band. So we would have these Battle of the Bands when we were 12 or 13. And if you were in a band, you got to be very cool and be on stage. And if you weren't in a band, you were sort of in the mosh pit wearing <laughs> your black and pink stripy pullover or whatever it was we wore. So I remember that one very vividly. That's awesome. Wait, were you in a band <laughs> or were you in the mosh pit? I was not. I was in the mosh pit. <laughs> You're in the mosh pit. That's awesome. Uh, my first one was Van Halen. Uh, oh, cool. The unlawful carnal knowledge tour. They came to uh, Memphis, Tennessee, and it was in uh, Memphis had just built this massive pyramid uh, downtown on the river, on the Mississippi River. And so uh, I got to see uh van halen um i did not like van halen though so i i was in this thing where my i was unfortunate all my friends liked uh heavy metal and i only liked um the smiths and the cure and rem and so but of course like they don't tour uh because they're from the 80s and it's it's in so uh anyway but it was still a lot of fun it was, it was fun in a different way it was fun because you were with your friends yeah, as an experience, right? Having yeah. seen Van Halen as an experience. Yeah, yeah totally. So, so tell me, where you, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in Buckinghamshire, which is kind of 
when I'm when I'm talking to non-British people, I say London, but any real Londoner listening would be really upset if I said London, so I won't. So it's kind of between London and Oxford in the UK in the countryside, but still close enough to the city that we sort of, you know, feel part of the London world more generally. But I mean, I grew up next to a farm, so it was very countrysidey. Oh yeah. wow! What did you, where did your parents do? Um, my parents run an anti-corruption nonprofit together oh, in wow. construction. Yeah, so they focus on um, preventing preventing corruption in all its forms, fraud, bribery, extortion, everything else in the construction and infrastructure sector worldwide. So I I grew up with a lot of a lot of discussion of bribery at the dinner table. Oh wow! Huh. Yeah. What What are they like? What, what, how did they How did they get into something like that? Um, they were, they were lawyers. My mom worked as a lawyer, as a litigator in construction. And my dad was trained as a lawyer and then worked in-house for, you know, big engineering and construction companies. Mm. And they met when they were both doing that. And they were actually doing that in Hong Kong. And, um, I guess at some point decided that it was time to transition. And having been in that world for a long time had seen or heard of a lot of, not seen directly but you know heard of been in the world of but understood how nefarious behavior can happen in these big projects because Mm. big construction projects you know there's so much money going around and there's so much scope for problems the classic examples being you're a government procuring a massive power station or a massive bridge there's so many opportunities for a small bribe here or there as to which contractor gets the gig or whether you approve a project that shouldn't really have been approved or the safety standards are relaxed and bribes change hands and those are the kinds of things that you know where there's a lot of scope so my parents having been in that sector for many years sort of understood how it worked and thought that this was an area that really needs to be tackled so in the early 2000s they quit that and went for went for the anti-corruption stuff wow that's crazy i didn't even really think about that huh uh that makes that's that's a whole other conversation that's really Uh, so, so you grew up in the country? Yeah. Yep. Oh, okay. What was that like? Did you enjoy that? Yeah. I mean, I loved it. I feel like it's a different thing in the English countryside near London than it would be in the kind of proper, proper countryside. Cause I was still mm. near enough a city, you know, like we were on the train and I could get the train into London in an hour. I and see. so that's a very different experience than being very far from everything. But I really liked it. It was a kind of nice mix of, you've got quite a, you know, sheltered existence you can spend a lot of time outside you can spend a lot of time doing sports mm. um i used to do a lot of running so i do a lot of cross-country running mm. um, but you've still got the city there when you want to go to the movies or go out with friends or feel like you're having a bit of an adult life as a teenager yeah yeah uh you know and i grew up in mississippi which is oh yeah uh, quote the country but i have a feeling it was very different it gets yeah, highlight it's probably a little more yeah it's interesting so like i guess I guess where you grew up is almost like a suburb of London, but it's like rural. Well, so actually that's a great point. So in London, we have the green belt, which is in the fifties, I think, but I could be wrong on the timing. They, they legislated that no new development could happen in a circle around London, which they called the green belt. And it was in order to prevent urban sprawl. But what it really meant is that we have a very dense city and then I guess a suburban ring, which is quite countrysidey and full of farms and parks and woodlands and things, huh. and then more building around the outside of that. But they so, they don't it does it doesn't get suburbanized the way they like it's, it's not allowed to. It's got incredibly strict oh. planning restrictions, and one of the big debates in policy in the UK at the moment is whether to relax that. 
should we be able to put in the green belt? Yeah, but right now, you're not allowed to. And so that's how I grew up in a house by quite a large town, but next to a farm. (laughs) What did that do to housing prices in those areas? Oh, yeah, no, not good. They're high, they're super high. high. I mean, in London for sure. And then even in the areas outside of London, just because we've had incredibly restrictive house building out, you can't sprawl, but we also have really restrictive house building restrictions up. So you can't Mm -hmm. go to Port Hall in London in almost any places because there are very strict restrictions on skylines and on shadow, you know, tall buildings cast shadow onto other buildings and you're not allowed to do that without Mm. a lot of approval. So house prices are astronomically high Mm. as a result of these restrictions. Yeah. Oh, so where do people go? I mean, how how does how does a how does a poor per, how does a lower income person survive in London if they can't even move far away on the train line? Yeah, it's not good. It's in hard. some, so there's some there's some affordable housing, but not enough. Mm. Some people just move really far out, and there are some parts that are more or less affordable than others based on how far out you are and how inconvenient the train is. Um, but it's funny, I'm actually doing some work right now on regional economic inequality in the UK. Mm. And we're, one of the aspects we're looking at is um, pay premia in London versus in other parts of the country. And we find that there's a big London pay premium, even for lower income people of the same kind of qualification level relative to the rest of the country. But that's completely eroded by housing costs. Oh. So there's there's actually a net a net financial disadvantage right. for London versus almost anywhere else in the country, unless you're in a really highly paid job. Um, you get you you pay you, your your compensation is higher in London. Your net compensation is lower. Yeah, exactly. If you're mm. a renter, if you're an owner, obviously it's very different because yeah. prices are not if much, renter, if you're a renter, right. yeah. You got that data over time. Has that changed over time? Um, we don't have it over a, a super long time series, unfortunately. I think we've only got it since about 2012. And you do see it worsening since 2012 because there's been a big increase in house prices. But we, well, ideally, we'd have it for 40 years and we don't have that yet. Yeah, yeah. You, but it exists. You've got to make it. That data exists. We're trying to, we're trying to figure this out right now, hopefully. Yeah, okay. I don't <laughs> want to take your project away. Right? Steal it. No, Tell no, me no you're not it. taking it away. I'm just <laughs> hesitating because I'm getting anxiety at the thought of whether it does exist because we do want to. <laughs> Well, so when you were a kid in high school, uh, what what would you have been doing? Um, you know, what were your hobbies that that you enjoyed outside of academics? Ah, uh, yeah, I did a lot of hobbies. I did a lot of sport. Um, did a lot of music, and I did a lot of uh, theater. So, you know, like uh, well, musical theater. So I don't know what I you know that's got a particular reputation in the U.S. But I was you know in all the school musicals and in the orchestra and in the choir. And I did um, track and field and field hockey and netball, which is a British game like basketball, but you don't dribble. Oh, yeah, um, dri- netball? Yeah, netball. It's a great game. And I really wish it was played more widely. But um, yeah, it's you just pass. So it's a very and then you 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 pass, 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 pass and shoot. So huh. it's, it's basically very similar to basketball in that there are two nets and there's a ball, um, but you don't dribble. Is there a professional league? I think so. But only a few countries play. So there's definitely a national team in the UK and there's a national team in uh, a lot of other countries primarily that were former British colonies because I guess that's how the sport's so You don't right? have any layups. You probably don't have any layups. No layups. Right. Um, no. There are you like have long shots. shots. You have, yeah, exactly. You have, right, right. Penalty shot type things. Oh, that's interesting. So you can't move. No. So you've got to just be it's like It's almost like ultimate frisbee almost. Yeah, I think it is like ultimate frisbee with a ball. Mm. And obviously it can bounce the ball. So you can still catch it on a bounce. Oh, you can pass it on a bounce. Oh, I see. Oh, that's interesting. Can you find, 
Can you find it online? I guess you can find it on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. It's a good game. It's fast. I'll have to look on. I bet there's like a, a thousand TikToks of netball. Hashtag sure. netball. Okay. Not netball TikTok. I haven't got that. No. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, so, uh, so what subjects did you, what, what, what were, what were your academic interests when you were in, in like your grade school, high school years? Um, so I was into languages quite a lot. I said a lot. I love languages. Um, so we had to, in England, everyone studies French pretty much in school. Everyone has to, because mm. I guess because they're next door. And then my school also, you had to study another language. Um, but then I, so I did German and then I also did, did some Spanish and did a bit of Italian and a tiny bit of Russian, which I've forgotten all of. Mm. Um, but I love languages. So I did a lot of that. And um, also economics, honestly, from quite an early stage. Really? So we had... Um, in the UK, the you take a set of exams at 16, which you take sort of 10 to 12 subjects at 16. And then you take only three or four subjects after 16. And those are the A-levels. And economics was one of my A-levels. So I loved economics, maths, and languages. And that's what I sort of specialized in. Mm, mm. Wait, so y'all had economics in, you had, you had good economics in your high school? Your it was really Your good. teachers were and, good? Yeah, not all schools offer it. My school had economics as one of the A-levels. And actually, honestly, you know, it formed a lot of how I thought about econ because it was it was good. You know, we did a lot of supply. It was it wasn't any it wasn't hard math. It was graphs. We did it graphically right. with local intuition, but it was good intuition. So we thought about perfect competition versus monopoly versus oligopoly. And, mm. you know, you have different, different curves and you think about dead weight loss. You think about price and marginal cost. We had a bunch of interesting macro. And I remember because this was a um I was in high in this last two years of high school, 2008 to 10, which is obviously what a time to be studying macro, right? Yeah. It was the beginning of the Great Recession. It was the financial crisis. You know, during this period, we had bank bailouts in the UK. We had the UK Chancellor talking about massive increases in government debt, which reversed the whole macro consensus of how much, um, what the debt to GDP ratio should be and what government should be spending, um, spending on. So it was a really cool time to be studying it. And my teachers were really good at bringing it in and bringing in what's going on in the world and how should we think about that through the lens of what we're learning in our textbooks. It was a fun oh, course. That's cool. That's, yeah. a, that's amazing. So did you go, when you went to, so then you go to Cambridge, was economics immediately something that you were interested in? It had to be because in our um, system, you have to pick the subject you study before you go to university. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so we don't, we don't kind of choose our major when we're there. In almost all UK degrees, you apply with your subject already. So you apply in the, in the fall of the year before you go to college. Mm. And that application, you've picked your subject and you've written an essay about your subject and your teacher's recommendation or whatever is about your capacity. Nobody can change their major? It's hard. Huh. It's hard. So I'd applied That's to study economics already when I was 17. So I got to so any, any British economics major that I observe compared to an American economics major, I'm looking at someone that is known even before they started college. Yeah. Yep. Oh, was known even before they started college. And also for most economics degrees has only done economics. Has only done economics. Because you can't, in most unis, you can't take other courses, which I was actually was quite frustrated about at Cambridge because I wanted to get other perspectives, but it was very difficult to take a class from another department and have it count for credit. Wow. So you're doing, you're doing, you know, economic history, or you can do like the politics, political economy, you can do the maths for economists, but you're within the economics department, you're within the framework of the economics degree your whole time. Wow. 
Wow, yeah. that's really interesting because the thing that I feel like I get really frustrated with and I was that I get really frustrated with is be, is that if you know that you're going if you ever decide to get a PhD in economics, it, it almost really is better for somebody like you who knew from the very beginning because they have to practically, you know, get a math major, you know? Yeah. And, and so, so many people, like I, I didn't learn about it. I didn't decide I wanted to become an economist until after I graduated college. And so, yeah. you know, it's just, it, it's great. It sounds great. You get all this fluidity to self-select, but you know, for something like econ uh, that has so many fixed costs for graduate training, uh, I bet, you know, that kind of struck, I mean, I guess it's the whole thing is that a lot of people though in Britain just, you know, they, don't, they still don't know that they would love being an economist. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it, it, it sort of cuts both ways because I agree with you. The way the system works right now, it's it's not as a, it's a very windy path from undergrad to an econ PhD, mm. um, especially with these courses that you have to have taken and got good grades in in math, basically. Mm. Um, and in the UK system, I think it cuts both ways. Uh, econ is a very big major. Mm. So a lot of people will just take it. And then if you've done it, it's trained you quite well to apply for a PhD. At least, I mean, the one at Cambridge, for example, there was a lot of math. It was very right. mathematical. It was very theory heavy. Um, and so it, it sort of trained you well that if you then decided in your third year of your degree, oh, I want to do a PhD, you're quite well set up. On right. the other hand, if you didn't know about economics at 17 and didn't apply to take it, yeah. it's very unlikely that you'll ever be able to take it because it's very unlikely that you'll shift yeah. majors once you're already at college. So there's a bit of, it cuts both ways there. So which means the system has got to build a lot more of all these majors into high school. Like, I think like, so. Like, I mean, yeah. you if you're having to do this for everything, then it seems like you've just got to somehow pump all of the different majors really earlier, earlier and earlier. I mean, are you like, what if you wanted to do like archaeology or anthropology? You just... You graduated high school knowing it. just like you did it. Yeah, you got to pick it. I know it's funny. I mean, I like I like the US system's flexibility that you get to explore a little bit more before you specialize. Because for us, I mean, we already specialize at 16. You pick four, three or four A-levels yeah. at 16. So you're already cutting off almost all of your other intellectual wow. interests. So, I mean, wow. it's good in the sense that if you know what you love, which I did. Yeah. Um, in retrospect, I would have liked to have done more science, but I didn't like it at the time. So I was like glad right. to stop and just do history and econ and maths and languages. But um, but if you are a bit more of a generalist, or you're not sure what you like yet. It can be quite restrictive quite early. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you majored in econ. What'd you like? What, 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 what were the classes that you liked at Cambridge? And which professors did you like? Who are some professors you remember that really fondly? Yeah. Um, so my my uh, macro professor, Petra Giratz, was um, amazing. She was a, she is a, a Dutch macroeconomist at Cambridge who focuses on monetary policy and particularly central bank transparency. And mm. she was one of my main um, professors because at Cambridge we have lectures, but we also have uh, tutorials, which are supervisions, which are small group sessions. So mm. she was my macro supervisor for three years and she was just incredibly good at drilling into kind of how macro works and thinking about the intuition and she'd always say you know don't describe it through the graph describe it as you would to your aunt betty who doesn't know anything about graphs or derivations and so she was really good at getting us to think about what is the intuition behind 
a fiscal stimulus, a monetary stimulus. How sh- how do we think about monetary policy and how it works? Yeah. I feel like that just set the groundwork for me for years about how to think about macro. And another another professor who I loved and whose class I loved was um, Victoria Bateman, who's an economic historian. So one of the unusual things about the Cambridge undergrad in econ is there's a mandatory economic history of the United Kingdom course in your first oh, year. Yeah. And it's from 1750 or something until 1939. Yeah. So you have three blocks. You have kind of early industrial revolution, late industrial revolution up to World War One, and then the interwar period. And so you do so much interesting economic history. And Victoria Bateman was my supervisor for that course. And you're doing why did the industrial revolution take right. off? Why in the UK, not elsewhere? How was it stimulated? And then you're doing in the interwar period, what happened at the Treaty of Versailles? Like what happened with the gold standard, international debt, defaults, globalization? So you get this amazing overview of kind of world economic history and the big debates. And that was just so fun as an 18-year-old to dive into. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Oh, that was wonderful. Who are some of the famous, like, I'm embarrassed. Was Keynes at, was Keynes at Cambridge? Keynes was at Cambridge, yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, that there was must a lot have been of... so neat to just, like, walk around where he was. It was crazy. I know. And also, um, my college at Cambridge was where Alfred Marshall was, who was, you oh. know, the founder of so much of modern economics. And then there was, you know, people like Caldor and Hicks and Robinson and, is really had a lot of the great economists coming out of it, which was cool. I bet that was neat. Just kind of feeling like, I bet taking a class like that history of English economics, being in this school where all of these great economists had been, must that just must be, I mean, I guess you get used to anything, but that still just seems really cool. Um, yeah, I think it is. And I think, you know, I look back at myself at 18 and think you should have appreciated a little bit more how unusual this was. Also just being in a place that was 800 years old and mm. being in a, you, I think you just sort of, you go, okay, this is cool. This is pretty. Yeah. And I wish I'd, I'd absorbed a little bit more what that weight of that history meant and yeah. how exciting it was, but it was amazing. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So then you leave. So then you grad. So I, I take it macro sounds like macro has goes back kind of far. You've been sort of, you've sort of been drawn to macro questions a little bit yeah. for, for a while. Yeah. But also labor was labor also stuff in at Cambridge that you were finding yourself kind of drawn to. That's a good question. I feel like that was a later interest of mine. Honestly, I was always interested in macro because I was always interested in, well, really what drove my interest in economics from the beginning was being interested in questions of poverty and inequality and unemployment and fairness and those kinds mm-hmm. of questions. So I was really yeah. interested in development for a long time, development economics, um, and I was interested in in macro and finance, really very much shaped by the financial crisis being the defining event of my, you know, like public social economic event of my teenage years. Yeah. So, you know, you grow up reading about recessions and bank bailouts and you see pictures of people taking their boxes of stuff out of Lehman Brothers after it went bankrupt. And this becomes what you're really interested in investigating. And then I think I got more into labor as I was thinking about inequality and unemployment and and poverty in the context of advanced economies, particularly the US and the UK, yeah. and thinking about, well, how how is this portion of inequality determined? Where does where do these massive gaps in pay for different groups come from? To what extent is this determined by the market? And that's how I yeah. sort of got more and more interested in that side of things. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, even sort of, I mean, I don't want to draw too much out of this, but I mean, it's like, you know, even your parents being so interested in corruption, I mean, within within a, within a sector, I'm sure that you're thinking about 
I mean, I guess like, it's like, that's not really consistent with perfect competition exactly. Or it does call for, you know, interventions or like, you know, it, it calls for people. It's interesting that your parents choose to go in and try to address that. I don't know. I mean, it just seems mm -hmm. like kind of, I get, I don't want to overstay it, but it's like, I could see that kind of social justice ethos kind of yeah. in your story a little bit. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. As I reflected on my kind of where I came from a little bit more, I think that's a big part of it. And a big part of it is a sort of skepticism and concentrations of power and right. a belief in the power of society, civil society and government regulation to combat it somewhat, which probably yeah, yeah, yeah. is a through line. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so... Okay, I, I I want to keep talking about that, but I got to save that stuff for in a minute. So so okay. then you so you end up taking a route into your PhD that is not as typical. You go to uh, and get your master's of public policy at Harvard Kennedy School. Can you tell me why you ended up doing that? Did you know that you were going to end up doing a PhD eventually? No, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I never wanted to be an academic. Uh, it was just never on my radar as a career path. I don't know if it was on my radar because I didn't really know what it was like or I didn't want to do it, but it just wasn't. Mm. Um, I was always really interested in the public policy side of things, sort of going back to this right. justice, I guess, social justice type um, streak. So when I was at Cambridge, as well as, I mean, I, I studied economics because I wanted to make the world better. And I thought economics was a way we could understand how to do that. And then while I was at Cambridge, I was very involved in a student society called the Wilberforce Society, which is a student think tank. So we, we wrote- it's called Wilberforce. Yeah, named oh, yeah that's the guy that ended slavery. In and, yeah, exactly. And he was a Cambridge alum. And so the people that founded this group named it after him as sort of someone that you know, <laughs> thought a lot about important things and then did good things with it. So yeah. we, we were a student think tank. And so I spent a lot of time writing policy papers, engaging, oh. trying to engage with policy and media on this stuff. And I really wanted to go into public policy, into some kind of job, maybe in government or maybe in an international organization maybe doing some kind of thing in the private sector, but as a social enterprise or a social impact finance type thing. Yeah. So I went to the Kennedy School with that in mind, thinking I love public policy. I have a very strong academic training in economics and I feel like I would like to be complemented with more of the practical stuff, more politics, more soft skills. And that's what the MPP was gonna offer. Yeah. Um, and also just getting the experience to live in the US and go to Harvard and meet people from all over the world. I mean, it just seemed amazing. So I went straight there after my undergrad thinking that I would do this two-year master's and use that as an opportunity to explore different career options in probably international development, social impact stuff. Right. Right. But while I was at the Kennedy School, I did some of that exploration and, and loved it, but um, wasn't necessarily sure that those were my comparative advantage, that, that mm. the, you know, I did some, I did some internships, I did some classes, and also ended up doing some econ classes um, with Ricardo Hausman, with Larry Summers, um, and loved them and realized that maybe Can I, I should say, yeah. What, what would it have looked like, do you think, if you would have said my comparative advantage is to sort of not be an academic? Like, like at, at, at Kennedy School, what was it? Yeah. What was it? What's the signal that you noticed that you weren't getting? That, what, what would it have looked like? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And I don't know if maybe it was just my idiosyncratic experiences that didn't give me that signal. And if I'd have had different ones, I would have, you know, gone in a completely different path. But I think for me, it was just that I hadn't found, I hadn't found a day-to-day work set of tasks that I I loved. I was quite happy to do a lot of the tasks Mm. that I was doing, but I didn't, I didn't love it on a day-to-day basis. I also felt and this was just me and just personal to me, but I also felt quite strongly that when I was doing some of my internships in international development, I was learning a lot, but I wasn't sure how much I was contributing. And mm-hmm. I, I worried that um, that there's a surfeit of somewhat educated, well-intentioned people from rich countries who want to help, but maybe don't actually have that much to add relative to a lot of expertise in yeah. developing countries. And it's really that expertise and that local capacity that should be supported rather than piloting, you know, flying in in foreign experts. And I just I wasn't sure how how I could fit into the, being part of the solution there. So that was kind of causing me to question what exactly how exactly I wanted to contribute and what exactly I wanted to do. And then I think I saw positive signals of my comparative advantage from taking econ classes and realizing that I loved the analytical process. I love yeah. the kind of figuring out some big puzzle about the world and thinking it through. And um, I realized that I loved teaching because I did it. I was a teaching assistant and found that I loved that. And I had this moment when I was on my bike once, so I was biking home from teaching, being a teaching assistant. I was like, I love teaching. I love doing this. I was, I was a research assistant for Larry Summers a little bit on a project on the UK. I love doing this research. I'm so interested. I wish there was a job that I could do this. And then realized there was. So, right, right, right. So that sort of, yeah, helped reorient my career a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the signals that I just heard you say, which I don't think everybody, it is even meaningful to a lot of people, is this desire to have impact, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Like you, like almost, I mean, some people would be like, impact, I don't know. I do it because I like it, or I do it because X, Y, Z, but you're kind of, wanting to have impact is that what, that's what you're saying yes. yeah I think that's that's a good point that's exactly I wouldn't be doing this I like the process but I don't like it enough to do it on its own right. without a kind of a reason for me the reason is that I hope to have positive impact with my research and my teaching yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. okay so so you're you're seeing some economists because there's a bunch of economists that are teaching in the at Kennedy in the master's of public policy and to him is is Hausman Ricardo Hausman. Yeah, yeah. He's still alive. Is that right? Yeah. No? Yep. Okay, Ricardo Hausman, and then uh, Larry Summers. Yeah. So so you end up continuing. You end up so there, you end up having conversations with them or something kind of in those classes that is kind of pushing you forward a little bit. Yeah. So I love the classes, and then honestly, um, Larry Summers uh, was an amazing mentor to me. I'm still is, but like pulled me essentially he had this policy he had a small seminar class at the time on it was called inside government it was sort of interesting economic policy topics in u.s government policy mm-hmm. financial crisis auto bailout um health insurance whatever they were yeah. and we would write essays for the class i remember writing essays on uh, advocating an 80 percent top marginal tax rate and advocating four percent inflation target i don't know i was feeling quite radical with my proposals <laughs> and i wrote these these essays and he had some policy of getting his TA to, to contact all the people that did well in the class and say, hey, why don't you have a meeting with Professor Summers? So 
if that had if that contact hadn't happened I wouldn't have ever met with him yeah. because I'm not I didn't I'm not the kind of person that and I wish I had been that reaches out to professors to meet with them so I did I went and met with him and you know as he did with all his students chatted what's your aspirations what's your background what do you hope to do and he said to me have you considered doing a PhD in economics you know you, you sound like you're well qualified for it you've done what great great in the class and that suggestion planted the seed and then he said well if you are interested in this be my RA be a TA for the class that I teach with Marty Feldstein and Jeff Liebman and Kate Baker which was a, a great class that I ended up TAing a couple of years and see if you like it yeah so it was that intervention really that that changed my trajectory oh wow, wow yeah that's great. That's neat. So, um, yeah. so, so did, did Larry Summers become your advisor when you were at Harvard? So you end up going and getting your PhD at Harvard. How many years were you there? Exactly. So I was two years in the MPP. Then I worked for a year as an RA and TA for Larry, for Ricardo Hausman and for Marty Feldstein between mm. my MPP and PhD. And then the I did my PhD. Team. Wow. That's really yeah. cool. It was amazing. It was a wonderful year. Um, and uh, then I did my PhD 2016 to 21 so five years in the econ department and Larry Summers and Larry Katz were my main advisors oh wow that's great so you just graduated yeah yeah I graduated a year ago a year ago so you've been at MIT a year that's awesome yeah so what did you end up writing your dissertation on my dissertation was on um it was called essays on power in labor markets it was the title so I had three essays and it was really all topics to do with kind of power and institutions so one was a paper on employer concentration. Um, so if there are few employers in a given labor market, how much does that suppress wages? Does that give them monopsony power? Second paper was with Larry Summers on the decline of worker power in the US and trying to quantify its macroeconomic implications. Yeah. And then the third paper was pivoting a little bit and was about um, minimum wages and union organizing protections and firms incentives to comply with the law, basically, and thinking about how the financial penalties are applied in practice and do they incentivize firms to break the law or comply with the law? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Now that we're moving into research, this is great. I <laughs> love all of this, but th this is a perfect. I couldn't have planned it better. So, yeah. uh, so here's what I was sort of thinking, you know, the, the major themes I was looking across your papers and reading three things is, is inequality uh, in the labor markets appears to be a big part of it. Yeah. Uh, monopsony, the minimum wage, but then there's also, this macro focus, I can't quite put it into words. So I'm hoping like that will be able to kind of, it'll be clear to me that the, the way all these things work together as we're talking. Yeah. But um, so this paper with Larry Summers, I don't, I don't want to summarize it because I, in the past on the podcast, have talked too much, but, but <laughs> um, you've kind of got these, it seems like you start with some strange empirical regularities. I, I'm going to call them strange because you're going to explain them. Usually that's the way I always think of it. Work, these empirical regularities between worker compensation, firm profitability over a 30-year period of time. Can you tell me a little bit about, before we even get into the explanation, there's a set of facts over a long stretch of time. What are they? Yeah, absolutely. So the big facts that we're sort of trying to reconcile are number one, a big rise in income inequality um, in the US since uh, early 70s, early 80s, depending how you time it. One, di one dimension of which is the decline in the labor share of income. So share of income going to workers is falling, share of income going to capital owners is rising. Mm -hmm. Fact number two is the rise how in- How big is it? How big is that change over 30 years? Um, depending exactly how you measure it and from when you measure it, it could be about- um, 
five percentage points of of so we our measure is the non-financial corporate sector compensation share so we're just looking at the corporate non-financial private sector basically the share of compensation the share of value added in compensation fell by about five percentage points from the early 1980s to the early the late 2010s is is uh our real real wages are rising but the share is falling I know, yes, I know there's a lot exactly. of heterogeneity, exactly. heterogeneity yeah. too, though. Okay. So the share yeah, falling right. would be the average average real compensation hasn't kept up with total productivity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Let me ask something. If you have rising labor productivity, can you also just in a traditional neoclassical model, if you've got rising factor productivity in labor markets, could you get that decline in the share or is it guaranteed that it would also keep constants something to do with the production function right it's exactly it's how you specify the production functions so one of the caldor facts was that kind of motivated our use of a cobb douglas production function as the baseline was that the shares of income of labor and capital had been roughly constant over the previous decades when he was sort of establishing the caldor facts yeah and so in, in your cobb douglas production function um the the factor shares are set by the coefficients, you know, k to the alpha, l to the one minus alpha. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have a production function which is, you you can specify a production function um, where that's not the case, and the factor shares can change, and then they can change as a result of non-factor neutral technological change. So it could non-factor be non-factor neutral. Yeah, as in like. Um, as in technological change that augments one factor rather than the other. Mm. If you have a production function that's um, that's not uh, Cobb Douglas, then that can change the factor shares. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you've got this. So number one, you've got uh, workers are getting less of the total surplus associated with output. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's the way I think about it. Exactly. Exactly. That's fact number one. You and I make. We got together. We make some. We make some gadget. We sell it on the market. It was. You know. It was historically 50-50 and now it's like sixty forty. Yeah. And you're watching it fall. And we're watching it fall. And the debate about how much it's fallen is pretty vibrant, but I think it's fallen at least a little bit. Um, And it was pretty stable before that for a number of decades, really, Mm. since natural accounts began in the the 40s. Yeah, so, Anna, is is this a completely different debate than inequality? Before we get into the, the more of these stylized facts, like, I usually think of inequality as just, like, the distribution of wages across the population or like 1%, the, you know, the, the 1% growing or something like that. But it, it seems like I haven't really thought as much about the capital labor shares. Yeah. So I think when we talk about inequality, we're often talking about different aspects of the beast. Yeah. So I would think, I like to think about it, that there are two big picture inequality questions. One is within labor income inequality yeah. and how that's changed. And that's been huge because we've right. seen the rise of very top income earners in, uh, we, well, we've seen two de- two dynamics going on within labor. We've seen the kind of college, non-college divergence, particularly in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we've also seen the top 1% or top X percent of labor earners really skyrocket. Your chief executives and other top executives, your lawyers, your pro- other professional service yeah, people. Yeah. So those are the two within labor dynamics. And then you've also got the labor on average versus capital, which is mostly shareholders dynamics. Yeah, and yeah, then yeah. you've got something going on with top 1% people, which is a bit of both. 
Because a lot of top 1% income is labor, but a lot of it is capital. Some of it is not entirely clear if it's labor or capital because they're an owner manager of a large company or they're a partner in a hedge fund and how much of that is labor and how much is capital. Well, now I can kind of see a little bit better, like the, all all the things that macro economic theory is bringing into you focusing on these labor questions. These all sound like, I can see, I I definitely, I definitely see this like merging of the two fields in the way in your research. I think so. And I think there's a lot of people doing really interesting work at this intersection because it's, I mean, to understand any of the, to understand any of the big social questions about what you do about labor markets, you need the general equilibrium and the general yeah. equilibrium is what macro as a field is about. And so having that, having that interplay is really important, I think. Right. Right. Okay. So falling labor shares and then, yeah. so what was the other, regu- some so other. Fact, fact one, falling labor shares as a part of more broadly, this rising inequality. Right. Fact number two. Um, rising corporate profitability and valuations. Mm. So ways you might measure that are uh, without a corresponding rise in the kind of safe safe interest rate. So you've yeah. got um, rising stock market values. You've got Tobin's Q, which is a measure of the yeah. market value over the replacement value of capital rising. You've got um, corporate profitability as measured is, yeah. is rising relative to the safe rate of return. And you've also got this big stylized fact of rising markups that a lot of people were talking about and still are talking about in macro in IO where you've seen the markup of price over marginal cost for a lot of industries has risen. And so all of these are tied up in the same phenomenon yeah. of the rising mm. profitability. Yeah, um, yeah, and then yeah, the, third yeah. fact, the third fact set of facts was, and this is before the current era, um, was the decline in average unemployment in the US without any noticeable uptick in inflation. So say that again, say, say that one more time. In average unemployment without any noticeable uptick in inflation. Mm. So if you believe in some kind of theory of oh, the world terrible. where there's a natural rate or a NERU, you know, you expect that low unemployment at some point will lead to higher inflation. Kind of like, a Phil- like almost like a kind of a Phillips type reasoning. Exactly. Like a yeah, kind yeah. of Phillips type relationship. But we, we saw this big decline in average unemployment from the early 1980s to the late 2010s. And there was no meaningful inflation throughout the 2000s and 2010s. And now we're in a little bit of a different world. We can debate whether that's some other dynamic, but right, that was right. the third salary fact. We saw that declining employment be- because we saw a lot of male labor force participation rates falling. Is that not accurate? Yes. So we're talking about the declining average unemployment rate. Oh, unemployment rate. But you're right that the employment rate dynamic muddies the waters a little bit. So you saw... Mm-hmm. Average unemployment in the 80s, you know, eight, seven percent. You saw average unemployment by the late 2010s in the threes and fours. Yeah. But you did have this big decline in male employment at the same time. And so the question of whether that was concealing unemployment is an important one. But that's not strong. So okay. Okay. I, I keep interrupting you. Was there are there more facts? There's more, right? No, those are the the ones. So uh before we get into your explanation, well, yeah, let's just. So, what the heck's going on? What do you? What do you? You you have some opinions. So, what 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 is going on with this? Yeah. So, I'll frame it as there are a number of theories as to what explains each of these facts or these facts together. So, if you're looking just at the labor share, the decline in labor share of income, some people attribute that to sort of um, uh, technology and automation, or a race between technology and education. Mm. Uh, some people attribute it to globalization. Some people attribute it to um, rising corporate power 
and some people attribute it to declining worker power. Those are the four big theories. Could you then, get that with just like increased factor productivity of capital, like computers or something? Something that's just like, I don't know. I don't know what the exactly that would be, but like just sort of like exploding productivity of capital. Wouldn't that give you some of this? Like, you don't, you're seeing. Yeah, in, in under some production functions, and it depends on your assumption about um, about that production function. Because again, if you've got a Cobb Douglas, then capital getting way more productive is actually also good for labor because the marginal product of labor is also yeah. higher. So right. it depends what you're assuming about the elasticity of substitution between labor and capital, essentially. Yeah. But yeah, there are some worlds in which that could be the driving force. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So there's a big debate about that. And then there was there was an is a a number of papers that argue they take the labor share fact declining labor share, then they also take the rising corporate profitability facts. And they say, look, this rise, this declining labor share stuff, this could be compatible with globalization, technological change, automation, all these sort of market forces type things that change the marginal product of different groups and therefore change their pay, right? That's essentially what it's saying. Change the marginal product of labor relative to capital under some assumptions about production functions, it changes their pay. Those are competitive explanations. But We've seen this big rise in profitability and markups and valuations that can't be explained competitively. Therefore, the explanation must be a rise in corporate power and product markets. And we saw this big rise in corporate concentration over this period. The number of firms in a given industry has decreased. So maybe what's going on is market power and markups. And that's explaining the declining labor share because capitalists are, you know, they're, they're, they're becoming more more profitable because they're becoming more monopolistic. Right. And that's also explaining these profits. And so then our paper came in and said, actually, all these facts can be reconciled just as easily with a decline in worker power yeah. as it could with the rising corporate power. But we think there's a whole bunch of other evidence that is more consistent with the decline in worker power than it is with the rising corporate power. So we, we, we're sort of saying the focus on power is probably right, yeah. but we should be shifting our focus on power to the labor market side of things rather than the product market side of things. Oh, so when you're talking about worker power, you are beginning to tap into the, the monopsony theory. You're saying other people were almost more focused on monopoly. And you're saying it, you you because th- because they were sort of saying is this monopoly issue that might be explaining some of this, and you're saying we think it's actually a it's got elements of monopsony. Is that what you mean? So, almost, except that I, I'm a little wary about calling it exactly monopsony, and the reason for that is we definitely want to focus on the worker power side of things, and I think monopsony has a lot to do with it as a baseline characterization of the labor market, but. Mm-hmm. I think even if you had a world where the labor market was not monopsonistic, it was some kind of perfectly competitive labor market, yeah. and you had a product market that was monopolistic, yeah. and the monopoly power didn't change in the product market, but there were strong unions in the past and the unions declined. Mm. You can imagine a world where, okay, past world was monopolistic product markets, generates lots of rents, lots of profits, and these profits, these monopoly profits are shared between unions and capital owners. Yeah. Unions then decline. Nothing changes about the underlying yeah, monopoly yeah, yeah. power, but oh, the rents go to capital. Yeah. So that's not a monopsony story, but it's a kind of worker power story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I it see. could be that story yeah. or it could be a monopsony story. Yeah. Oh, that's all I was kind of wondering is I actually didn't know how you move between the, the concentrated product market and it wouldn't automatically imply some kind of symmetry in the input market. I don't know. It's, it's so funny. It's like, I, sh- I feel like embarrassed. I sh- how how much of micro I constantly am forgetting 
you know, as you like, like, I'm, I don't know. It's like, I taught it for 15 years, the grad micro. And it's like, I, I just, it's so, you know, so much of economics, you have to hold all this stuff simultaneously, uh, right? How yeah. all these are working together. I forget. I just constantly am forgetting. Um, so, so the, when I think about worker power, I always am thinking of it as like these, uh, these, these old mash bargaining models that mm. I don't know how helpful they are, but I was just going to yeah. tell you like, you know, I always think about uh, worker power in terms of like, well, if you don't pay me, I'm going to quit. And that's credible insofar as the employer can observe your outside option. And usually yeah. that is a, the credible threat position. Yeah. Is that at all going on here? There's some declining credible threat. Like, is it helpful to use? Is that a helpful way to think about any of this or is that's not really helpful? So I think it is. And I think I'm I'm still open about exactly where the worker power is fitting in and which types of worker power fitting where. But I like the Nash Bargain framework as a kind of intellectual architecture. Um, mm. I think there are two areas where worker power can fit into it. One is, um, well, actually, in some sense, it's three. One is if you've got the firm's outside option is the max they're willing to pay, right? The worker's outside option is the min they're willing to receive. Yeah. And then maybe there's some surplus between the two. Mm-hmm. So one aspect that determines pay is the worker's outside option. And that could be getting worse or getting better, but that's the one you're talking about. I, yeah. If I if I don't get what I want, I quit. And the, the threshold at which I quit is my outside option. Yeah. Then there's the firm outside option, which is how easy is it for the firm to replace me in some sense? And right. so- I think one aspect of changing worker power that's been induced by automation and globalization is it's easier for firms to replace some kinds of workers than it was before. Yeah. So the firm adoption changes. And then if there's any surplus in the middle, that's where I think your things like union bargaining power matter uh-huh. because they might not affect your outside options, but they might affect how that surplus that's created by the match is split. Mm. So I think actually the Nash framework is quite useful just to think about which types of worker power fit where Um, And which ones have changed. And I think the surplus splitting power has clearly changed because unionization has declined so much. Mm. The firm outside option side may have changed as a result of technology and globalization. And then the worker outside option, I think it's not super clear if it's improved or got worse. Mm. Because you could think of the rise of the internet and things as making job search easier. And I was, that's easier. all my thing. I, it's my 14th question oh, here. no. <laughs> Go ahead. No, keep going. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you can think about that as having made job search easier, right? Like, right. It's much yeah. easier to find a good outside option now mm-hmm. um, if you can look on LinkedIn or look on exactly like, one of these boards. Yeah, but it's not. Yeah, because that's what well, I was going to ask you. Because you got this paper with Schubert and Tasca or yeah. Tasca on employer concentration and yeah. outside options. Um, so it says, I wrote down, it seems like your paper on employer concentration and outside options is actually getting at this worker power hypothesis. Is mm-hmm. that all right? Um, so we're looking at at, at, a, at the really the kind of monopsony outside. You're looking side. at the monopsony so part. Yeah. If we're but, thinking about it being determined, you know, these three these three portions, we're looking there at the what what is happening to the workers outside option piece rather yeah. than the rent splitting piece induced by unions or something like this, that. So this is this is exactly my this is what I find so difficult to understand. Although honestly, I I don't find it difficult to understand, but like I kind of feel like my reasons can't be the real, my personal reasons can't be the explanation. So like, so it, why is monopsony relevant if I can just move? Like, I don't understand this, like late, like we, we talk about the labor market as though it's like this local area, but then when we have like platforms like LinkedIn 
and the search costs are the search costs for looking for a job. They seem like they're kind of low. I mean, maybe I'm completely wrong and they're like somehow LinkedIn has made it harder and there's all this congestion, but it's like, it seems like it's like, I know about jobs all the time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I got Joe, I got LinkedIn. I got like a billion ways. I hear about things. I got my network, all this internet stuff. And all I got to do is move to another place. Right. It's like, I mean, I had an opportunity to do that. I did not ultimately take it because of family stuff, but like, but a lot of people, that's what they do. So why is it all of this stuff making monopsony less relevant? Because I kind of get the feeling it's like either a bunch of economists are focusing on the wrong topic, but there's an awful lot of attention to monopsony going on. Yeah. So like, it seems like there's something going on. I'm just curious what, what you think about what I, what you think about that. Yeah. No, I mean, I think this is a really big debate. And so on the point about moving, yes, like clearly people can move employers and they can move places. And so there must that must impose a limit on the degree to which a firm can suppress wages for any given worker. And the more mobile a worker is, the, the, the smaller that, that limit is. I think what I would say is what I think the, the bulk of empirical research is, is adding up to tell us is that even though search costs are relatively low, Switching costs are relatively high. It's the switching costs. As you said, you know, you're not going to move if you've got, it's hard to move if you've got family commitments. It's hard to move if you've got a mortgage. It's hard even to move employers if you've got a kind of care schedule that you need to switch around. It's, and that's changed over time. Like that's so the part I understand. Say, like some of this stuff feels like those are constants. So when you're is, telling me something's changing over time and those are the explanations, I think, well, that's always been hard, right? It's harder now though. So yeah, no, this is where I, I was going to say. The second point is I don't think monopsony has changed over time. I don't think there's any evidence to say it's got worse. Oh. I think, and my my take on the labor market is uh, very similar to a paper by Erickson and Mitchell in 2007, where they had a great explanation, which is that the decline in worker power has exposed the latent monopsony of the labor market. So there's there's this some un, there's some underlying nature of the labor market that is intrinsically kind of frictional, kind of monopsonistic. Yep. You know, that, that, that mobility allows you to move at a given degree, but there's a cost. And so yeah. between between the salary and the cost of moving, there's some wiggle room for firms to exert some kind of monopsony power generated by these frictions and switching costs and search costs and everything else. Yeah. I have no reason to believe that's changed much over time. You can construct a little some stories where non-competes and occupational licensing have made things more frictional. You can construct other stories where the Internet has made things less frictional. So Hard to say. I think it's a toss up. But I think what has happened is, uh, you know, 40 years ago, a quarter of private sector workers were in unions Union. and a whole bunch of others had a credible threat of being in unions. Mm. And there were other mechanisms that gave workers more bargaining power in their workplace and their firm. There hadn't been the fissuring of the workplace as much and all this kind of stuff. And so there was more formal and informal power for workers inside companies, which uh, which exerted a countervailing force to this underlying latent monopsony power. And as that worker power declined, it sort of exposed the latent, unchanging, monopsonistic nature of the, the labor market. So that's my personal take on the time series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unions. That's, oh, and it's so cool. All right. So, so then, um, so then I'll be cynical. So, yeah, remote, remote work from home. Yeah. Right? So, uh, here's a here's a completely cynical take. If I am a if I am watching firms gleefully promoting work from home, I almost am inclined to think that it's 
they've figured out a way to use it to create higher switching costs so that they don't leave, so that they can extract more of the rents. I was curious, you know, to what degree, you know, to what degree do, do you think that this remote work from home might appear to be uh, advantageous to the worker and in fact may actually just kind of be like, kind of like what you were saying a little bit with the London premium, which is like on this one margin, there's this improvement, but you know, on this other margin, is, is there something about it that I'm not guessing? Cause it looks like a free lunch a little bit to the worker. I mean, it's like, I you like think about London, right? It's like, it's so expensive to live in London. Well, I'm going to live like really far out beyond the green area that you said where it's really cheap. And yeah. I'm going to like, you know, get that London pay that premium and work from home. The fact that any firm actually wants to do this is just kind of giving me a little bit of some alarms. Interesting. Well, I, I'm not sure I, I understand what the mechanism would be, how they extract the rent. So maybe yeah. you can. No, I don't know either. I yeah. just like, this is kind of the, 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 the horror story kind of yeah. thing. Like, yeah, there's yeah. some, there's something nefarious. Like, why would they want to do it? Why are they well, want see, to do it? I, I think I think I'm more optimistic on remote work for most people um, in that I think it's a benefit people really value. And if you look at work, you know, Nick Bloom's work and other people's work on remote work, my colleague Erin Kelly, people really value remote work and they're willing to pay a lot in terms of salary equivalent for having the option for remote work and for flexible work. And if you add on then the cost of living in big cities versus outside big cities, um, you're going to value it even more if you're able to leave because then you're not paying a whole bunch of money in rent for something you don't intrinsically value. Assuming that there are a lot of people for whom living in so the here's, what, here's the mechanism. Okay. Uh, you, get the, you get the same productivity, happier workers, and you pay them less. Right. So then the question is, are you extracting rent or are you creating value? Are, are, you, are you leaving the, if the workers are better off and the firm is better off, in some sense, it's a value creating transaction, but maybe the bigger share of the mm. value in the market. If the work is left the same and, you know, you cut their pay by the exactly the in increase in the welfare from the remote work, then I think the rents will go to oh, the firm. Oh, that's interesting. Right, right. And then the question is, do they get passed on to a consumer or do they sit in the firm? And that's where the product market competition becomes important. So I, I think it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out because also different companies are taking different stances right now about what they're doing with pay for remote work. Yeah. So some of them are saying they're adjusting pay to local cost of living and some of them are saying they're not. And that mm. that's going to have to shake out at some point. I don't know how it's going to shake out. Yeah. Um, but my sense is for the companies that are able to go fully remote, um, unless they're in very monopolistic product markets, a big share of that cost decrease must inevitably be passed on at some point to consumers. So mm. we're going to see some really interesting dynamics into which industries can do fully remote and which can't and how that plays out, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet you get a bunch of some cost fallacy stuff at the firm though, like Apple. They're like, man, we just built this giant, you know, yes. <laughs> it's yes. like city uh, headquarters. Y'all better come in. You know, we yeah. can't like, I can't rent this out to the local church or something. It's like, you know, it's no, like, it's true actually. Once you've got that kind of infrastructure, physical infrastructure in a place. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, very, very hard to go back from that. Yeah. Well, it is so uh, nice to uh, meet in person and to to learn more about, to talk more with you about your interesting work. Um, uh, thank you for being on the, the, the episode. Oh, it's so nice to talk. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Okay.